All right, this is just a short preamble to the upcoming podcast because in it, there have been some brewing issues that have been going on in the fitness industry, and I haven't really talked about them very much, and for some reason, and I'm going to blame it on Rocky, um, he got me venting about it. I totally Rocky's fault. So Okay, I'll, t- I'll take the responsibility. Okay, good. I wanted somebody <laughs> too. So in general, I don't like to be negative uh, toward other people. I know I've done it in the past, and I, I really want uh, a, mo- a more positive theme across everything, but there have been some issues that have been brewing for quite some time, and um, and it just came out on this podcast. So I am not going to apologize for the negativity, but I am going to warn you that it's there, and if you do not want to hear it, um, even though I think it's quite entertaining and there's some great information in this one, particularly about uh, what kind of testosterone replacement therapies you should look at or whether you should use test boosters, uh, some great info in there. Uh, I, I just want to warn everybody of the content and, and that it's Rocky's fault. It's my fault, but there are some great nuggets of information. So, uh, Oh, yeah, it, 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 for what it's worth. It's a great podcast, and uh, please, everybody, uh, at least – I ask you to overlook my rants, um, and I I feel that they are well-deserved, but I sh- probably shouldn't have vented about them as much as I did. But anyway, they're there, they're recorded, and it will be released. So, all right. I hope everybody enjoys. You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, who is back, Dr. Rocky Patel. Back with a vengeance. Well, (laughs) (laughs) good. We'll see about the vengeance, but I'm sure you have some stuff to rant about. (laughs) Oh, there's always stuff to rant about. I'm sure you have your fair share of rants as well. So I do, but I want to start with you started to tell me about a patient before we got on here. Yeah, I recently saw a new patient in the practice, and um, she she has an endocrinologist who treats her type 1 diabetes. She's been on insulin for quite a long time. And, um, uh, she, um, was, you know, I was pretty under good control, but started a low carb diet and, uh, where she has a continuous glucose monitoring device we talked about on the past. And, uh, after the eight weeks of being low carb, um, her curves, there was very little variance in her blood sugars. So a lot of times, uh, type one diabetics will have like a normal hemoglobin A1C, which is their 90 day average of your blood sugars in the rear. And we, 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 we kind of use that A1C as a marker of how well your control is. So we often talk about healthy hemoglobin A1Cs and unhealthy hemoglobin A1Cs in diabetic patients, particularly type 1 diabetics. So you, there's, it's an average of both your fasting and random sugars, but you can have an A1C where you have lots of lows and lots of highs, and that'll give you the same average as someone who has very tight control who has not so many lows and not so many highs. Those two patient profiles can give you the same hemoglobin A1C. So on the surface, it looks like their A1Cs are well controlled and they have good control of their diabetes. But then when you look at their, their glucose curves, they're completely different. And we know that 
postprandial after meal glucose excursions are not a good thing. So she was able to actually squeeze that that window of where her sugars go from probably an average of 70 to 150 at the most um, with occasional lows by just low carbine. And so she had done this for eight weeks and she went to her endocrinologist who works at a very highly prestigious clinic in the country here. We have oh, a, you can, a, you a can say that. Yeah. Oh, she, she, her, her endocrinologist is at Mayo Clinic. And um, they freaked out because when they did her lipid panel, um, her lipid panel came back with a total cholesterol over 300 um, and an LDL way above 200. But when she compared it to her previous lipid panel, um, her triglycerides were 60 um, and her HDL had gone up about 15, I think 15%, which is like unheard of with any type of drug. Um, so and she's one of these patients I've seen in my practice who low carb and get this paradoxical um, increase in their cholesterol. And, and she was really kind of um, fearful because uh, they made a big deal about it. Uh, and um, she was really kind of upset and didn't know what to do because she felt great. She hadn't felt this good in a while and her control was really good and you know, she was doing really well. And I think she was using only maybe 20, 25 units of, uh, of insulin a day. So she was able to really cut back on her insulin intake. And so I'm kind of sitting and listening to the story and I'm, you know, I had her glucose curves in front of me before I went in the, in the, in the, in the room and I look at this curve. I'm like, holy crap. I mean, this is awesome. I go, I wonder why she's here. She's doing great. So I go in and I get the story. So I'm like, I mean, anybody should be really, really happy with this, with this glucose curves. And, you know, why would, and, and they're telling her to eat more carbs, <laughs> Because of her abnormal lipids. And, you know, not to say that her abnormal lipids are necessarily a good or bad thing, um, but I, I think that um, if we know that we look at glycemic control, really, I think the underlying factor is that maybe exposure to insulin and that glucose curve. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of I said, you know what? I don't probably, I probably won't have an answer for you because you're in a bucket that we don't have a lot of research in. So, um, but we, we decided to do some further testing just to make sure everything is kind of on the up and up. And, and I, you know, actually I kind of hope to maybe try to see if she's one of my type one diabetics, maybe I can get off her insulin. Um, you know, that's really kind of not, that's kind of unheard of or potentially told that you can't do that. But, um, it'd be interesting to see how close I could get to the point where she's not using, you know, insulin or just very little. I think I could pare her down to even less than 20 units a day. So maybe under 15 or 10 units, which would be pretty amazing. Yeah, I would see no reason you couldn't make that happen. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, one of her points was, one of her points was, you know, I'm going to the Mayo Clinic where, where the ketogenic diet was under research and primarily developed as well. So, you know, there's such a disconnect between specialties. So, um, you know, the neurologist maybe might be more akin to the ketogenic diet because of its neuroprotective um, 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 efficacy. Um, but, you know, obviously the endocrinologist, you know, they didn't really have a clue and really it just, it was, oh, you know, your cholesterol is too high, even though you've got great control of your diabetes. So eat more carbs. <laughs> your A1C is too low. That's what they told her. She's, it's unsafe to have an A1C of 5.9 as a type one diabetic. You, you need to have your A1C higher. That's what they told her. So in other like, words, they're that's just crazy. clueless about what's going on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would understand the validity of uh, the concern of the A1C being too low because you know, if your A1Cs are that low as a type one, it's going to typically in a, you know, standard American diet, you're probably having lots of hypoglycemic episodes, but when you're not eating carbs, 
You know, your, right. your levels are very flush. There's not a lot of variance in that. And, you know, she had one or two episodes over the last two weeks, you know, over, I'm sorry, last eight weeks while she'd low carb, but it wasn't really happening on a daily basis. Plus, she's got a CGMS machine. So if she's going too low, she gets a warning. And, um, you know, she can, you know, take a snack if she needs to. So, I mean, it's like the best case scenario where, the, you know, and, and I love patients like this that come to me who are very in, uh, active in their healthcare. It makes things, my job much easier because for me, it just makes small tweaks here and there. So, you know, so the question is, what do you do with a patient like this who has really, really high lipids? And, you know, it kind of comes back, it, it harkens to that, that Gundry podcast we did. So the only thing I really did for her is um, took cheese out of her diet. I said, just take cheese out of your diet. Take, t- take the dairy out. I go, the heavy cream is fine, but just take all the rest of the dairy out for four weeks and let's see what happens. I go, I- I'm not going to expect any miracles because um, when I did that for my own lipid panel, it didn't make a difference. But, you know, maybe that should be the one that has the potential alpha one casein issue, you know, or whatever that may be. Right. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. There's so many issues and testing for them is, I don't know, almost untenable at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the other thing that came up is uh, there's a video going around right now um, uh, and someone had tweeted out um, hemoglobin A1C as one of the best markers for you know, testing. You should you should get your A1C tested. It's really important. And, you know, uh, it's a kind of a bug in my rear because I think it's a bad test. I personally think it's a bad test because the test is it's got a good positive predictive value basically. So if, it's, if the hemoglobin A1C is above 5.7, it's it's a good marker that your sugars are not well controlled, but if your hemoglobin A1C is below five point seven, which is considered quote unquote normal, that doesn't mean things are normal. And so I think things get lost with just using hemoglobin A1C as a marker for chronic disease and, and like non diabetics and pre diabetics per se. Um, and there's a, a plethora of data uh, in the literature showing that um, if you take patients who don't have diabetes and do hemoglobin A1Cs and then do a two-hour glucose tolerance test on them. So you basically do a, a, the gold standard for diagnosing diabetes is mm-hmm. a two-hour glucose tolerance test. Right. So you go in fasting, you get a carbohydrate challenge, and you get your blood drawn fasting, and then one hour, two-hour post-carbohydrate load. And um, they've shown that the uh, uh, sugars go up in patients who have normal hemoglobin A1Cs. So you can actually miss the abnormal sugar readings and if you include like pre-diabetics in the population that you're testing, up to 93% of the time. Um, wow. And I have certainly diagnosed my fair share of diabetics with hemoglobin A1Cs that are normal via two-hour glucose testing. So I'm not saying you shouldn't get the hemoglobin A1 test done. It can be part of a screening rule. But even if your A1C is normal, it doesn't necessarily keep you out of the clear. And so I see this, t- this uh, you know, I see this kind of bantied around on the internet. And I'm like, you know... That's great to start with, but that's to start with. It's not an end all and be all. So, well, anyways, the problem that's that, my rant. <laughs> no, I think it's a good rant, and I it actually really goes with things we've said on this podcast several times and discussions you and I have had about how a lot of the numbers and the tests and everything that we use as the new definition of health. Nobody knows what health is anymore, other than okay, what are your scores on these tests and different challenges. But unfortunately, those numbers were created in a population that is eating a diet that's making them sick. So how do you translate those numbers into really good, useful information in a population that's now mixed that is actually could be eating a diet that is making them healthy, 
it or they're also or they're eating a diet that's making them sick but they're not quite on the verge of being super sick so you know these markers say something different than you know now compared to when they've eaten a diet for so long they're really sick compared to somebody who's not eating carbs at all and their markers look like they're in the danger zone so it's it's hard to really put together what it is we should be looking at in all these tests and it's impossible and I think asinine that anybody should go around and say this is the one test you need to use that's it's just idiotic yeah I think in the the video I saw they they claim that this is the best test and um, there are some arguments about measurements of glucose and how that can be inaccurate as well and that potentially if you don't carry as much muscle mass uh, glucose tolerance tests can be more inaccurate because you won't have as much muscle to pack away glycogen and that will raise your, you'll have higher abnormally high glucose tests. Um, but, um, but again, see, I, I, would, I think I would bet that's false. Yeah. I, I, I haven't had time to research that issue. I've never heard that before. Yeah. And somebody I would think just that trying to sound smart. Well, this sounds logical and people will buy it. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I haven't actually done the research on it yet. So I haven't I've reserved my comment on that issue. But still, who did you know, the if video? the sugar's up, it's up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Who did the video? So. It's a pathologist out of Australia. I think oh. uh, it was uh, a video that was done, I think, through Jimmy Moore's series when he went through the Low Carb Australia tour. Oh, uh, okay. So uh, I, I, you know, I had commented, uh, someone had tweeted, hemoglobin AC is, is, a, is a good test. And so... I kind of pointed to the fact that you're going to miss dysglycemia in about 93% of the patients. He said, oh, you should watch this video or listen to the, the podcast. So, you know, listen to the podcast. And I think there's some really good points in the podcast or, mm-hmm. and there's some good stuff in there. But using it, telling uh, telling a patient that the hemoglobin A1C is the best test for looking at glycemic markers, I completely disagree. So, but, that, uh, you know, it comes back to looking at risk factors. You know, we look at risk factors instead of disease, right? Right. Uh, especially in car- the cardiovascular field. And it kind of comes back to what I had emailed you earlier about, you know, measuring peak VO2, you know, looking at your oxygen consumption at peak exercise and the plethora of data in the literature showing that when your peak VO2 is low, it's connected with all your chronic diseases and cancers, mm-hmm. right? I mean, right. having low peak VO2 correlates with your if a higher increase of colon, lung, and prostate cancer in men. Um, there's correlations with breast cancer in women. It correlates with obstructive coronary disease. Uh, right. And, it also could, and, and all cause mortality. Well, so they're and, even measuring something that's functional, right? I mean, Right. And you can, that, that should be easy to translate for those interested why that correlation would happen if your VO2 max is extremely low when you're in an exercising state. That means you're very heavily carb based in your metabolism and probably specifically fermentation carbohydrate fermentation uh, we call it that's when we get the anaerobic respiration so in other words your oxidative cycle is not able to come up to the capacity to help with your energy needs so it's going through this anaerobic process which causes a lot of reactive oxygen species buildup that can trigger all kinds of damage within the cell they can then turn on the oncogenes and so on and so forth. And so it's not that hard of a leap to understand why that is. Um, and that we have such a, like, like you said, Rocky, a functional marker. Those are the things we should be looking at. Exactly. Because so, people and, and don't the, understand. That, all right, I'm going to interrupt okay. you because people don't understand these statistics and how they're used for disease risk because it's just like the weather and 
this is based on a type of statistics called Bayesian statistics, and that's, okay, given this set of conditions, this is how often we get a certain outcome. So if there's an 80% chance of rain, that means in all of our past data, when we see this kind of combination of weather effects, we get rain 80% of the time. That doesn't mean we're going to get rain. That just means that's the history of what we've seen. And that's what we look at with all these current tests and all these numbers we have and all these correlations. They are based on people who are potentially sick or eating a diet that is making them sick. And then we say, okay, when we see this cluster of numbers, this historically, this is what we see as far as the number of people who will come out in some risk state or some diseased state. This isn't like you know, just because it's 80% risk, that doesn't mean you have a super high risk, to be honest. That just means gr all the people grouped that we have data about in the past, all of those people and all the parameters in their life, they all of that came out to be an 80% risk. That doesn't mean that yours is. Uh, so finding Correct. these it is, it right, finding these singular tests that can give us a much more predictive, give us greater predictive power. It's very important. That's all I wanted to say, which and you know, is a lot. And, and, you know, the, the fix is so simple, right? It's in front of us. It's the elephant in the room, obviously. So it's Wait, reducing what is carbohydrate that? exposure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know. Oh, my God. Are bit. you serious? Are you serious? <laughs> oh God, we're, yeah. we're not supposed to. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> That's like an epiphany. I've never heard that before. <laughs> But it's just crazy, man. I, patient after patient after patient, you know, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I was talking to one of the nurse practitioners here in the office and we have our, our, um, our first responder clinic. And so, um, the running joke in the first, with the first responders is if, if we were to knock on their door, the first thing they would do is put, to, throw their oatmeal down the toilet. That's kind of the joke because, you know, obviously <laughs> throw the marijuana, that, you know, as a drug, that, right. that if we were like a, on duty, that that's what they would, the first thing they do, they go, we're going to throw your our oatmeal down the toilet. <laughs> Wow. So I think we're I think we're training them in a, in a certain way to hopefully improve their health as well. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just moving a little bit. It's not a lot. It's like, you know, for most patients, I tell them, if you walk for 45 minutes, four times a week, in addition to what you do, it's all it takes. <laughs> it's it's right. not a lot. <laughs> and then, you know, cut your carbs by 50%. I mean, you don't even have to go, you know, you don't even have to do a, a ketogenic or a low carb, you know, under 50 grams a day. I go, you know, you get it down just to under, you know, 180, you know, something reasonable, you'll see huge changes in how you feel and how you do. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's, you it's just kind of, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling that the answer is so simple and it's not expensive. It's not an expensive 200 month dollar drug. Um, you know, it's something that actually will save you money, right? Well, save you money and save your life and actually improve your health rather than just treating one symptom after another. I mean, exactly. it's, it, it's just amazing the how many different facets of health um, and you want to look at allergies, uh, you want to look at cognition, just how many different aspects of the human experience carbohydrates can affect and make worse. Now, granted, there's a way to use them that could be of benefit, especially to high-performance athletes. And that's what, you know, some of the programs are about that we do here and that we talk about. And obviously, I, I would still make the argument that for long-term 
health and weight maintenance and longevity, you do need an quote-unquote injection of carbohydrates uh, once a week, maybe once every other week, maybe a little sooner depending on who, who you are. But in general, you know, it's really that simple. Like don't like decrease the amount of carbohydrates you eat. Like why? And, and I think that's so difficult because there's so many talking heads out there just saying, well, that's stupid. It's calories in, calories out. And, and I don't, you know, uh, you, you, I don't know how you actually battle that any way differently than what we're doing here. Just trying to help people understand. It's the same conversation over and over again. I mean, I saw another patient today. He um, had an event. He had a cardiac event and had a stent and then had to go back and get a second stent. And he's diabetic and fairly young. And, you know, I've beaten him over the head with the low-carb talk and we need to get this under control. And then, you know, I, he came back today and nothing's changed. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? What do you eat for breakfast? Yogurt and a banana and some apples. And I'm like, oh, I'm like... <laughs> I go, you're better if you're not eating anything than eating that stuff. And, you know, uh, we've done pretty well with getting your sugars down. They're not where they need to be, but he hasn't lost any weight. And I'm like, you know, and that's so we went down this road of what we just talked about. And he went, holy shit, you know? And he's like, so I can eat beef? I go, yes, you can eat beef. And and so I go, if you would, I, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but here's here's your trial. Do the do the B diet, right? The B diet would be Brussels sprouts, broccoli, bacon, butter, and beef, and that's all you eat for two weeks. And come back and see me, and let's see how you're how you're feeling and what your sugars are looking like and how much weight you drop. He's like, that's nuts. I go, well, I go, <laughs> I go. It's that's it's nuts. you're you're battling over the minutia because you're worried about your apple or your oatmeal when you really the 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 elephant is in the room with you here, you know. So um, I think I made some progress with him. I'm going to see him back in about four weeks. So hopefully we'll see how it goes. But uh, again, it's just over and over again. It's the same mantra. Um, I, I don't know if I think Gundry again had mentioned uh, fruits on the, the mother. Was it was it, he saying Mother Nature put fruit on Earth to make us fat? Is that, I think that was one of his isms. Uh, so I've actually been. kind of, Which I've, was, I've been kind of using that. I, I kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, not to vilify fruit per se, but it's just always thought of as the most healthy thing you can be eating. Right. And it can be, I suppose. But um, again, it depends what your goal is, right? Right. What's the situation in front of you? That's recently so. been absorbed and regurgitated by um, the, you know, my, my favorite moniker for them, the bullshit exec. Uh, he's got a YouTube <laughs> video on that. Yeah. It's. You know, just nothing safe in this industry. But I, you know, it, it's a good point. Uh, unfortunately, the YouTube video that I'm referencing, I mean, makes it clear that the author of that video doesn't really understand what's going on with the fruit. He just wants to say fruit's bad for, I think, uh, publicity effect. But, yeah. you know, Dr. Gundry has a much firmer grasp on the hormonal and enzymatic triggers that are being activated by fruit. And it, it, it is actually very complex, but when you think about it, you know, basically everybody wants to villainize fructose. That's so they can vil villain uh, villainize high fructose corn syrup and Coke and all these things. But it's actually more complex than that. It really is this combination. And anytime you have an introduction of fructose with glucose and what was one of the most natural, naturally abundant sources, the only naturally abundant source of fructose, basically a combination of fructose and glucose 
at any one time that we could have gotten in history, and it would have been fruit. Um, and that that combination is very important. If you, it turns out, if you actually ingest pure fructose, you can insulin levels can actually go down, and you can and you can actually activate pathways that stimulate ketone production. Uh, fructose, okay. it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's not there is, bad. Yeah, there's data. Yeah, data shows that they actually improve glycemic control in diabetics. Yeah, fructose itself is not bad, but that's because all the pathways that – so that's because in that instance when it's just fructose and insulin has actually been lowered, fructose can only go down certain pathways that cannot produce uh, – any of the negative effects we normally think of like fatty liver, uh, de novo lipogenesis, things like that, or even into glycogen recompensation in the liver very effectively. But once you introduce insulin, which is only going to happen if you also introduce some sort of glucose with the fructose load, all of a sudden the insulin turns on or makes the pathways – into all the negative stuff, all the per- fat production, all that kind of stuff, it turn it makes those pathways far more likely for the fructose to go down. And fructose, unfortunately, has an unlimited capacity to get into those pathways, whereas glucose has a limiting rate, which is glucose six phosphatase, I believe. You know, limits. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, whereas fructose is has no limiting factor that way. It has unlimited capacity to get into the 3-phosphate level where glucose would eventually get into. Um, but there's three chemicals. Each of these three chemicals have three phosphates. That's why it's called the 3-phosphate level. And then the, those products will go into one of multiple pathways. But if insulin is around, the pathway they're most likely to go into is de novo lipogenesis. So again, you know, this this is all pretty complex. But the fact of the matter is the very basics of it is if you're eating anything – that is a combination of fructose and glucose. So that includes sucrose. That includes high fructose corn syrup. That includes fruits. Any of those things will create a very strong environment for you to have all kinds of metabolic issues. And one of those is, you know, getting fat. I, I emphasize ingesting chronically. Yes. Well, well, you know, even, as opposed even, to cyclically. <laughs> well, right, 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 right. Cyclic, you can obviously time it in a very appropriate manner, which again, everybody should know that by now listening to the podcast. But you know, fruit is one of those things. If you're chronically eating fruit, if you just think fruit is healthy, uh, you're. It, it really was, I think, the way we went into the fall. Which, if you look at the fruits that become ripe in the fall season. You get things like apples, pears. Those actually have the highest ratio of fructose to glucose. Um, and in those, those should in particularly make you more fat under this kind of logic. Well, that would make sense if those things become ripe in the fall when you're moving into the winter and you're going to have less available food sources potentially. So I don't know. It all just kind of makes sense to me. I don't know why people get bent out of shape over fruit. I'm not that excited about fruit. I, you know, I used to, I would eat oranges all the time and bananas and pears are one of my favorite things in the world. I love pears. Oh, I love pears as well. Yeah. But to be honest, I just, 
over the last several years, I just haven't missed it. And every once in a while, I will get a pear. But I just don't, I don't miss fruit at all. Uh, it's kind of weird. You know, I thought I, I thought it would have more of an impact because I do love things like oranges and pears and things like that. And, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. And I don't even see how it fits in my diet anymore other than as like a piece of candy. That's how I view it. It's, yeah, it's kind of. It's kind of the same way now for me as well. You know, I, I really enjoy cherries. You know, cherry season, I usually look mm -hmm. forward to. But mm -hmm. even that doesn't really, um, you know, I'm like, eh. You know, I, it, again, it's like it's not a foreign concept to me now <laughs> almost. I mean, I think when I do eat fruit, I, I, I really enjoy it. It, it some, you know, actually tastes better to me now because I'm not eating it as frequently or at all almost. So, um, you know, will I have some fruit every once in a while? Yeah, I, but for the most part, yeah, it's gone. I, I, I can't even remember the last time I had a piece of fruit, to be honest with you, unless it was in the form of a, of a lemon stuffed donut or something like that, you know. Well, right. Cherry turnovers. That's my preferred, <laughs> preferred vessel to get my fruits in every day, there you go. Every, once a week, um, if that. I, yeah, I, um, the, the fact that fruit is still on the – you know, recommended that we need to get that many servings of fruit or vegetables a day is kind of asinine to me. And it, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of metabolism. If you asked anybody who is an expert in metabolism of hexoses, which include fructose, uh, galactose, um, glucose, and you ask them about the, you know, pathways and how insulin affects these pathways and could produce and could shuttle things towards de novo lipogenesis or ketone production or help control triglyceride levels, they would run down the series of everything and it would be a no-brainer. But then if you ask them about, well, okay, what about carbohydrates and fruit in the diet? They would flip immediately and be like, well, yeah, those are yep. obviously very important. So mm -hmm. it's, it's this disconnect of what we know as fact and how we interpret it based on all the essentially pro propaganda yeah the propaganda that's been pushed on us for a really long time and we still have those people out there pushing propaganda well they got something to sell well that's what's right. interesting you know i was thinking about some of those people today and they really don't have much to sell other than you know trying to find food for their ego you know, basically, well, that could be part of it. Yeah, some of the more vocal camps, they don't. They never really help people. They don't go around the internet and say, "Here, do this," or they don't present a diet program or say, "Here, this will make your life easier." It's like, "Oh, here's all the stupid things." Oh yeah, all that's stupid. Oh yeah, you just eat too much. You need to exercise more. And every new thing that comes out, they jump on it to make fun of it and to seem smart, even though I have my doubts about their intelligence overall. Um, and it makes them popular and they get a lot of, you know, all the people who feel the same about the new movements or whatever, you know, they jump on this person and, you know, they think they're awesome. And then that person moves on to the next thing. They never actually sell anything useful and they never contribute anything useful. It's, it's you really know, I, just I, kind of I, feeding an ego. You really been rubbing off on me because as of late, and more and more, I see this this on, on online in the blogosphere and in 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 Twitter sphere. I just shake my head and say, I, I just I'm the same way now. I'm like, I don't believe it. I don't now that I don't believe it is just I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I I honestly think that it, you know when it comes down to it, although you might not feel this way, I think 
you know, all these people have stuff to sell. They're selling you stuff. They're marketing to you and they can market to you in a healthy, you know, marketing and whatever they want, but it's marketing and they're just trying to make money. And, you know, I think it's not to say that they're not helping people per se. I mean, some people do get healthy and improve their, the, what their, what their, their health status is. But, but again, um, you know, I, I think that there is so much bullshit out there. So I, much. Definitely. I mean, look at look at the proliferation of YouTube channels of talking head fitness gurus who work out. It looks like they take five grams of testosterone a week and, you know, they're balding. They look horrible, but they're yelling at the microphone. This is stupid and this is stupid and this is what you need to do to eat. And their channel is loaded with ads like ad after ad after ad is popping up on their video. There's only one reason they're doing that. And they're not putting out material that, for people to buy. They're not trying to educate people. You know, we're – content has been a little slow lately again because we're in the midst of kind of redefining the company or just defining the company for the first time. And one of the most important things that is going to be on the about page of Body.io is Body.io is not a fitness company. It is not a health company. It is not – um, oh, a supplement company. It's none of those things. Body.io is an education company. We are only trying to provide the best education that we can possibly provide. And whether that's through ebooks or free content on the site or these podcasts, we are trying to educate people. And maybe you don't like the education slant that we come from. Maybe it just it doesn't settle with you and you think we have our facts wrong or – you think I've misinterpreted data, um, that's totally fine. I have no problem with that. Then you can find someone else to try to educate you. But I really do try to do the best job possible of bringing the best information and synthesizing it in a conc concise manner that takes into as many possibilities as I can into consideration. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really about education. That's why there is so much free stuff that we do. Um, because we're just trying to educate people. Now, you look at all these other things, and sure, maybe they're popular, and they've got a big audience, and their videos get shared, but at the end of the day, what are they really doing for anybody? They're generating eyeballs so that they can get ads and, you know, supplement their income or make it their main income, and that's, you know, that's their choice, and that's totally fine, but I have personally, and I think you're coming to this attitude too, I just have to accept that that's out there and ignore it um, because that that's really all you can do. The times I won't ignore it is when I think people have kind of overstepped and started to plagiarize in my opinion or have gotten things screwed up and they're actually saying things that could make people unhealthy. Um, that is the time I will take notice and maybe make comment. But otherwise, you just you have to ignore it. There, it's so much of it out there, and it's really there for entertainment, so they can make money generating views and showing you ads from YouTube. I, I would have to say that there is one YouTube channel that is redeemable. That's what the bro that? science guy. That bro science guy who has those videos where he flexes and the machine guns go off. And have you seen those videos? The bro I science life guy. I think he is he the one who's done a couple pretty good ones about CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> That's redeemable. Do I, I <laughs> you think that one's redeemable? I think so. That's worth watching, actually. <laughs> well, well, that's what I said. You know, these things, 
I take them purely as entertainment, and that's fine if you enjoy watching them. You know, and I've seen some of his videos. I think they're hilarious, and I enjoy watching them too. But if anybody thinks that anything those people say is credible when it comes to science, I'm thinking about one. You know, a couple people in particular that are just. You know, it's clear they work out a bunch and they're really big and whatever. And they're yelling about, you know, can you can you beat me? You know, that's how they end their podcast. Or, Are you bigger than me? You know, stupid crap. And then they're trying to give people advice on how to get healthy or jacked or whatever. It's like, you know, seriously, watch it for the entertainment that it is and realize that's all it is is entertainment. There's no valuable information there whatsoever. So have you been have you been drinking all your uh, butter coffee every day? I have not. Is that oh, I, is I that what you, we want to? I heard you on a couple of <laughs> segue uh, into. I know, yeah, I, heard, I was gonna say do I we want to segue into Ben's. Yeah, I heard you talking about it with Ben uh, on the last couple podcasts you do with him. So um, I talked about of, butter and uh, coffee. Yeah, Me drinking butter and coffee. Fat. Uh, well, but no, butter is a great fat, but I know I've never I I I don't ever drink butter and coffee. I've actually gone back to straight black coffee, actually. I've been taking the heavy cream out, actually. Oh, you as have? Of late. I have. Um, um, I'm trying to think. I, so. I, I have a little bit since I've moved back to the Bay, only because so few places have heavy whipping cream. Yeah. So I've had to drink coffee black. But uh, I, if, if I'm drinking it black, I drink it really black. I go for the red eyes. Uh, which oh, for yeah. Those, yeah, for those of you who don't know, that is, it's like an Americano. Um, or you can think of it as a cup of drip coffee with a couple shots of espresso added to it. Um, that's a red eye, and they, there's something about that combination that produces a, a really incredible flavor that I enjoy. Not to mention the caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, you, I again, I'll see patients coming in doing a lot of this as well, and you know, for better or for worse, you know, they're not where they want to be. They're not getting results they want. Their blood sugars aren't getting better, whatever it may be. And, and again, we have to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, what are we doing here? And maybe, maybe having um, a stick of butter in your coffee twice a day in the morning is the best thing for you. <laughs> well, you think? <laughs> um, well, you know what, what's interesting is if you look at the promoter, the person who promotes this the most rabidly, I'll use the word rabid. Over the last few years, they don't look so good. Um, people have been sending me pictures of them speaking at conferences. And um, and, and this is true. I'm just going to say this is true of a, a lot of people regardless of their dietary slant. The ones who have gone too far in any one direction, um, they're not looking that good. And this – this contains a host of people from all types of dietary uh, – what, what's the word? I'm, dietary – different dietary po paradigms, you know, whatever, whether it's ketogenic or whether it's – Vegan. Yeah, you know, vegan, all these things. You, yeah, right. Yeah. These people aren't, you know, uh, bulletproof, whatever. You know, these – paleo even – uh, which is a good reason to have my paleo rehab series so people can get off of paleo and onto something healthy. Um, you know, they're, they're not looking that good. And we need to step back and say, okay, why not? What's wrong? You know, what is going on? And they need to be the first ones who are super self-critical about how they look if they are following, following their diet. 
and you know, not I and I'm not saying everything is about aesthetics, but if you're accumulating body fat around the waist or you're developing man boobs or you've got a double chin and nobody can tell the difference between the before picture on the screen behind you and how you look on stage, you you honestly need to step back and say, am I helping people if I can't help myself? Or are you just not doing your diet and be honest? Just say, look, I've been off the wagon for nine months. My life's been crazy, whatever. And that's fine too. Just somewhere there needs to be some honesty across the board. People see me... And they ask, man, like you're so jacked in your some of your pictures online. You're not so jacked right now. I'm like, well, yeah, I haven't technically worked out in nine months. I've made it to the gym like maybe one day a month for the last nine months. Just uh, having a lot of injuries, a lot of pain creeping up and a lot of my workouts. And life's been busy and chaotic and in flux. And, you know, that's fine. Well, guess what? Maybe I did drop some muscle mass, but I leaned out at the same time. I dropped body fat. My diet and I am on carb night and a mixture of carb backloading where, you know, I eat carbs sometimes during the week. And people are like, well, what are you doing diet? Well, like, you know, what are you doing eating carbs? I'm like, no, I don't care. You know, it's basically here's the simplest rule. Look outside. Is it dark? Okay, you can eat carbs. That's the rule I live by right now. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how simple it is. That is the rule I live by. Okay, is it dark outside? Yes, it is. I can eat carbs if I want to. I it love is, that. that. It is, is that awesome. simple. Is, is, is that not like how much simpler could that be, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm not working out like I did. I have recently started going back to the gym. Um, but, you know, I hadn't been working out for a while, and I just didn't worry about it. it literally, it was dark outside. Pfft. I'm going to have carbs if I feel like it. And if I don't feel like it, I won't have the carbs. That's all I've been doing. And, you know, although I, you know, I lost some of my muscular size, you know, some of that pump and size, like I just leaned out at the same time. So you could probably get it back within, you know, weeks. Exactly. We'll see. You know, I'm about to turn 40 in three months and, you know, I want to get back up to just being badass at 40. Um, and so that's, you know, why I started back at the gym. It gives me a really good goal to come off of this hiatus. Um, you know, but the fact of the matter is like, I feel it, this whole process has actually made me feel a thousand times more confident in what I teach people to do because I know it just works. You know, I did not have a, a huge fallout from it. Like I'm seeing in some people I respect, you know, I, you know, I respect the work they're doing and how, adamant they are in trying to get a message out to people to make them healthy uh, the problem is it's not working there's something wrong and they're not they're not willing to admit it and you know like I said this has just made me feel so much more confident that I am doing the right thing Um, and of course it makes it much easier to come back from not working out if all you have to do is worry about getting your muscle size back instead of worrying about also losing a bunch of body fat and trying to get your muscle size back uh, so I'm very happy about that, but I don't know what I don't even know what started that rant. Oh, I, I it started with the bullshit exec in there somewhere. Yeah, I think butter in the coffee. I just I love that brand. If I were him, I would totally rebrand everything to the bullshit coffee, bullshit exec. I mean, bullshit MCT. I mean, it describes all of his products so perfectly. The bullshit diet. 
There's all kinds of MCT oils out now. Everyone's got their own version of the MCT oil, right? I mean, Which is funny. Yeah, and uh, it's the stock MCT oil. Except for his <laughs> uh, his neuro one that's basically C8. Oh, the brain octane, right? Yeah, which I really wish he would have done some study. He would have actually looked at research on the C8 because A, it's not, it, it doesn't have the brain octane properties that he claims. But B, that's actually the dangerous MCT. That is the one you do not want to be ingesting in large quantities. Um, it can screw up uh, membrane function if it's incorporated into membranes. It has lipid effects that are not positive. I mean, that is the one you don't want to take a lot of. Um, but anyway, like that, that would be a, an awesome brand. I would love, I, you know, I, half of me would want to support that brand just because it's so bold. You're just being honest. Like this is the bullshit diet. <laughs> this was all the stuff. My, oh, go ahead. I, was, I think my, I think my podcast is going to be pulled tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just yours. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> I'm just kidding around now. I don't know. I've actually gotten like, uh, I've gotten like four new patients in the last week from that podcast I do with him eons ago almost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and granted, he did introduce me to a large community. Um, I didn't realize the consequences of that would possibly be borrowing information I talked about on that podcast without ever giving me credit, um, which is, you know, something I don't appreciate because I don't do that. If somebody teaches me something or I learn something from them, I reference them constantly. Um, so I'm not very appreciative of that. And I don't care if, you know, I do appreciate that he introduced me to his audience. Uh, I just don't appreciate what he did after that. I don't blame you. I mean, I mean, when did you write Carb Night 2005? I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Car Carb, that, Carb Night was 2005. Carb Back when was 2011. Uh, several months after that podcast, suddenly... You know, eating carbs at night was a new part of the Bulletproof diet, but my name wasn't mentioned anywhere in that. Um, he's even got a YouTube video about eating carbs at night is a new thing in the Bulletproof diet. Doesn't mention my name or my products at all. Um, never talked about, you know, as far as I can tell on his forums and his website, never talked about MCT oil until our podcast. Again, it was a couple months after our podcast when I said MCT is one of the top things you should have in your diet. Like, he ran with that. Um, and I, you know, I'm not trying to say he copied me or anything, but, I, you know, I would just like a nod in that direction. I'd say, hey, you know, Kiefer talked about this on my podcast, and I really looked into it, and I thought it was awesome stuff. Like, you know, how many times have I said that about the guests on our show? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's just, I would look at it as mutual respect. So, yeah, well, so it, yeah. it won't happen. So, <laughs> you're, so you're turning 40, so God forbid your testosterone level must be like in the toilet, right? In, in, have you had it drawn yet? Or well, especially it? with, you know, not working out or anything, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, you know I've, so many people have actually been asking me about it because there's a, a good amount of the audience that is actually uh, 35 to 45 and up. Uh, male population and so they're very concerned about their testosterone levels we get questions about testosterone boosters all the time and so it just made me you know think about it like well i am actually in that age range that i should maybe be concerned 
so I did have it tested and my testosterone levels are excellent. Uh, I'm just, I'm going to blame that on my diet, uh, the high saturated fat and animal products and my activity level, even though I, you know, I'm not training, I am still very active and my you diet walk Cooper, is, right? yeah, yeah, I've got to walk Cooper and that my nutrient density is good because I don't eat poor people food, which is what I've begun to call vegetables and salads <laughs> and things like that. So when I see people eat salads now, I'm like, oh man, poor people food. I, I'm sorry. I feel bad for you. Which, you know, on a side rant, if you think about it, if you really, if you grasp that, and I talked about that on a couple podcasts ago about why fruits and vegetables were actually considered poor people food uh, at the turn of the last century from 1800s to the 1900s. If you think about it, that is brilliant that Whole Foods has created a model where they can make people pay a massive premium for what's considered food for poor people or what used to be considered food for poor people. <laughs> is that not amazing? That is amazing it's to me. Brilliant. That is a, it's, it is. Yeah, it is. It is awesome. a marketing feat. People complain <laughs> about me when I have any kind of marketing whatsoever, like people do not be upset about my marketing because it is nowhere as brilliant or as effective as Whole Foods. It's um, almost like an evil genius. It, it really is. I wish I could have come up <laughs> with something like that. But well, you anyway. got me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've gotten to the point. I've gotten to a point with the vegetables where it's like almost, uh, I know at least for me for the last several weeks, it's almost been very non-existent just because they haven't showed up anywhere. Yeah. You know, if but, they're there, I eat them. If not, eh, I don't yeah. worry about it. And if it's nighttime, but vegetables might include potatoes. Yeah, right? Right. Well, they're nightshades. You, you can't eat nightshades. I know. Time. Nightshades are poisonous. Even though we, you know, <laughs> white potatoes are paleo. This is going to be like the Trashing Everybody podcast, basically. <laughs> but there's little gems. In here, trashing people, there are little gems of knowledge. You know, for example, you know, that's why we have the calorie because Atwater was looking for a way to create a diet – based on the foods that impoverished people were eating, which were vegetables and fruits, creating a diet based on those that could mimic a healthy diet of Americans who were eating animal products like bacon fat, lard, um, beef, those things. So it really was the calorie. We have the calorie basically as an equivalence to see, okay, you know, how much of this vegetation could you eat that is in some way equivalent to these healthy, these other healthy foods? That's why we have the calories. So there, there's a little nugget of knowledge. Yes, vegetables were originally considered food for the impoverished. They were food for people who could not eat foods that would make them healthy, which is quite the reversal today because we're told to eat those foods to be healthy. Uh, that should tell you an issue right there. Um, what What's another... Another gem we were about to come up with. Uh, I think oh, we were, were trashing on paleo. No, we were talking about oh, potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we potatoes, about, yeah, yeah. We were talking about potatoes. So there's another gem. Most people don't even know, even though they know paleo and nightshades are poison and they're going to make your colon fall out. But white potatoes are white, okay. Yeah, according yeah, to paleo. Starches. Yeah. Plus it feeds your gut bacteria. Right. Well, here's the deal. As long as it's cold, it's got to be right. cold. Right. Potatoes are nightshades. Um, so they can potentially contain some of the chemicals that could you could be allergic to. But on top of that, you know, they're paleo approved, which is amazing to me because people don't realize white potatoes in particular, those tubers, were 
only introduced to Europe 500 years ago. So if you were of European descent or Persian descent, you did not have potatoes in your diet until 500 years ago. And yet the entire premise of paleo is that you should not eat foods that you haven't been eating for at least a million years. Okay, call me crazy. There seems to be some sort of disconnect there. Um, rice has become okay. Well, why is rice okay? Well, because Okinawans eat it. That is like the dumbest logic I've ever heard, but that makes it paleo approved. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, the, the, these, these are important. Starch too? Yeah, everything. Safe starch. Well, and what's, what's funny is I, I'm wondering when that started, that white rice was the safe starch. Because if you remember a couple years ago, I had put out that article about the sins of organic and that if you wanted to talk about the cleanest, non-toxic carbohydrate that you could eat that was grown, it was white rice. It has the least number of carcinogenic substances of anything else, any other crop that we have. It wasn't long after that that I started hearing it, be called, hearing it called a safe starch. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know. I think, yeah, uh, like I, I'm, a lot of that safe starch was perpetuated by uh, who's the guy who has a perfect health diet? Um, oh, uh, Jaminet, yeah, right? Paul yeah, Jaminet. Jaminet he's, the, he's, yeah. The, he's the one who's gonna, I think, monikered that safe starch. Yeah. Um, um, well, it's been picked up by bullet essential as part of the diet. Right, that's been picked up by bulletproof as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, safe starches and safe foods. Yeah, that's you know. Do you remember Star Trek? The uh, Next yes. Generation. Did you watch that? Big fan. I'll admit it, this is my nerd in me, but yes, I love that series. Do you remember the Borg? Yes. Okay. Resistance you, is futile. Yes. Do you do you do you see the correlation I'm starting to make here? <laughs> you got getting there. The, yeah, the bulletproof brand should be renamed Borg. The Borg brand. Hey, it's well, got a nice power to yeah you will <laughs> resistance is futile um pretty much is what it comes down to we may have to actually nix this podcast because i i really did not plan to <laughs> trash on anybody very much um i just you know obviously i've got a bee in my bonnet lately uh over over all things bullshit approved so anyway testosterone we'll see how it goes you have yeah, to, yeah testosterone. Back. So we got you're turning forty. Your T levels are all in the toilet, right? I mean, that's what you told well, me. Well, no. yeah, no, no, no. My T levels are fine, but that's what everybody yeah. keeps telling me is their T levels are in the toilet, and they want to know what they should be taking to do it. And that's what made me go test. Like I, I wasn't. I was worried. I started to think about it. I'm like, wow, I am in that age range. Maybe I should be concerned about uh, my my testosterone levels and make sure those are okay and everything everything's clean across the board. It's great. Free testosterone, whatever. Uh, estrogen levels are fine. They're low. So, you know, every, everything's fine in that regard. But, you know, it made me start to look into what are the options for guys who are really worried about that because there are tons and tons and tons of testosterone boosters out there that are over the counter. You don't need a prescription. So you can get them and use them as much as you want. Uh, and the question is, you know, how efficacious are they? How effective are they? And it turns out, you know, some of them can can be effective for some people. Um, but, you know, one of me, I, I wanted to look into the mechanisms behind those. And Rocky and I talked about this some. And one 
One thing that testosterone boosters do, the natural ones, is that they increase levels of luteinizing hormone, which is the as luteinizing hormone levels go up um, in men, the testicles start to produce more testosterone, and luteinizing hormone is kind of a signal to release more testosterone and you know be more aggressive, be ready for mating, whatever you want to call it. But you know, luteinizing hormone is one of those signals, and that's part of the um, that's the the HPA axis to regulate your testosterone levels as they drop off, luteinizing hormone goes up, turns it back on, testosterone goes up, then luteinizing hormone goes back down. If testosterone levels drop or you get out of balance with so estrogen, negative feedback testosterone. cycle. Yeah, you know, so you've got this, you know, it helps to regulate how you produce testosterone. So if you raise, if you find a way to raise luteinizing hormone, then you can raise testosterone levels. And that's what all these test boosters are based off of. Well, it, it's funny, and we'll we'll dig out these papers and we'll put them down in the the references. But elevated levels of luteinizing hormone independently correlate with advanced onset of Alzheimer's. Uh, so this made me start to really think about that as: is that a viable option? Is that something we want to do? And so the converse is: okay, what is what is one possible? alternative and that would be hormone replacement therapy for men for those who are in a situation that they need it um it, in those scenarios it actually turns out that hormone replacement therapy for men so this is direct injection of testosterone uh, for men it's usually done i don't know rocky bi-weekly monthly in the replacement i try to get patients at least once a week once a week um, okay so they have yeah at least once a week so it's introduced so. weekly and that decreases the incidence or onset of Alzheimer's. So we have these two totally different scenarios. Um, you know, but potentially it's even it can be even more worse than going, that because yeah. when you mentioned yeah, when you mentioned the LH being associated with dementia, and I, I had never really seen that research and or correlated to that that effect. And when I looked at it, I was like, holy crap! Because here's the thing: who are the patients that have low testosterone? Typically, they're insulin resistant. What does insulin resistance correlate with? In case risk of dementia, so in a in a in a way, you're almost putting lighter fluid on the fire by potentially using some of these products because you're already at risk for dementia, and now you're going right. to actually increase it. Right. So that's the first thing, and and you know certainly I think one of the things that we have patients coming in all the time that want testosterone. I mean, it's just it's a it's an epidemic almost, and um, whether they really need it or not. But I think one of the things that I see most commonly is you know it might not just be age. I mean, that's kind of the normal thing as you get older or as you become more insulin resistant and more obese, um, you're going to have lower testosterone levels. But there are other conditions that can lower testosterone, and I rarely see other people checking for these things. So, I mean, certainly if you're going to get thinking about testosterone replacement therapy or something to that effect and you have low T levels, you know, one of the things that it's not common but should be tested for is hemochromatosis. If you have an abnormal iron storage disease, uh, you know, I re always recommend uh, at initiation of therapy checking that ferritin level. So that's really important because that could be something that you could miss. And you know, you know, hemochromatosis can lead to liver failure. So that's not a good thing, obviously. Right? How? What would you do to treat that? What would be your? Um, it depends. Um, typically, you can do phlebotomy, so you just donate blood. Oh, a lot of okay. times. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's or the easiest way. We'll, that's interesting. That's probably the easiest way. Yeah. So. Okay. But you know, if they have if they have elevated liver enzymes, then that's something where I'd probably refer to a specialist just to make sure that 
they didn't want to do a liver biopsy or mm-hmm. you know that type of thing just to make sure that you know there's not ongoing damage going on but um but yeah i mean a lot of times it's as simple as this phlebotomy that's so. interesting so I just – I thought that was very interesting. I never see it come up. I've never seen it discussed. Obviously, people selling testosterone boosters, which is big business. Uh, I know I recently went to a conference where two of the people there had a supplement company that has not been doing well over the last couple of years. They introduced a testosterone booster, which does, like all the others, raise luteinizing hormone levels. Their company literally started making 10 times as much per month with the addition of that one product, and it completely changed wow. the demographic that buys from them. So instead yeah. of you know 20 to 27-year-olds, their demographic now is 35 to 45-year-olds. A factor yeah. and, you of know, 10. That's yeah. r- from one that, product. That's so the that, pharmaceutical industry marketing testosterone to that age group. That's what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. It's huge. So, you know, you, you need to make a decision. I think that's, in my opinion, from the research right now, if, if you have low T levels, if you are getting older, like I said, I'm turning 40 in three months, um, and I was at least concerned enough to look at it. Luckily, I don't have to worry about that. Um, but if I did, from the research that's out there right now, I would I would completely stay away from the testosterone boosters. I would go in and I would ask for hormone replacement therapy. It, it, and if, I think it can be I done safely, some, you know. Yeah, it, well, it can the, be done very safely. There's tons and the of, data behind yeah, the data behind replacement increases insulin sensitivity. It helps with uh, body composition. Um, certainly there's the cognitive benefit, mood, yeah. libido. So you get a lot of positives with it. So it's amazing. I, mean, I think yeah. you've done it in the right right dose and right patient, and if it's followed appropriately, it's something that you can you can do long term probably. Although we don't have a lot of long term studies, you know, the biggest thing right now that's scaring men into not doing TRT um, are some of the cardiovascular things that you're seeing on the news and the lawyer ads that potential cardiovascular link between testosterone replacement therapy and and, and heart 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 attack and heart disease. So um, it's a lot of it's kind of inconclusive and. Um, I think a lot of the data doesn't look at some other markers like estrogen levels that these patients uh, could potentially be on. So we know that patients who over-aromatize and turn their testosterone more into estrogen, those are patients that are going to have those higher risk issues. Right. So So you might need some adjunctive therapy with that HRT. You might also need some anti-aromatase therapy as well. Yep. Do, Do you do that? Have you had to do that with some of your patients or? I don't have to do it very often. Um, uh, but every once in a while, we'll have someone whose estrogen levels go really high. And um, what, we do one of two things. Either I back off on their dose and see if it kind of comes down naturally. Um, there are a couple of things you can use that are an herbal that can are uh, natural kind of urban haze inhibitors that sometimes they work. Um, sometimes they don't. And then um, obviously you can use prescription aromatized inhibitors. But those are actually – they're not indicated for the indication. They're all indicated for like cancer prevention, breast cancer prevention. So – they're all used off-label. They're not indicated for it, but they doctors prescribe it. Got okay. Well, what is so. what are the herbal remedies? You just you just teased us there. You said there's, <laughs> well, the there's herbal remedies, called, but then you, yeah, the, you don't follow. There, it there, there's a there's a there's something called dim, um, and uh, it's basically um, derived from cruciferous vegetables, and uh, this this has been shown to help um, normalize um, estrogen balance. These, so these are things that are called considered estrogen balancing supplements. Hmm. So it's a DIM. I had to, I, it's a di-indo, I don't remember the exact, uh, um, 
chemical name here. Give me one yeah. second and I'll tell you the exact. It is diendylmethane. Okay. Indolylmethane. So, oh. uh, but um, if you just go to Amazon and type in DIM, D-I-M, you'll find it, you know, all these different products. And so that's something I've, I've had some limited success with. Um, so a lot of times what I'll do is if, um, you know, I may uh, put them on uh, maybe just a small amount of DHEA and a little bit of DIM and sometimes things turn around pretty nicely and it's, it's not a lot and it's just a massage, so to speak. And it doesn't cost a lot of money, I mean, per se, in terms of, uh, or it's more convenient than coming in and once a week to get an injection if they're not willing to self-inject. So, but that's something that, that I've had limited success with. Got it. Well, yeah, well, I was just curious. So, um, yeah. Yeah, do we have anything? Speaking of that, since we were on the topic of bullshit coffee, there's there's some interesting research. So I, you know, and this relates also back to paleo and the canard that is paleo, um, and making sure that you get uh, milk and butter and all this stuff from cows that were fed a grass diet and that were not injected with hormones and all this because those hormones get into the milk and get into the fat and and then they get into our diet, so on and so forth. So it made me really curious uh, because I saw an article where somebody was reading about if you're eating any kind of dairy from conventional cows, particularly your children, they're getting massive amounts of estrogen and you're potentially causing them all kinds of hormonal problems as they're growing up. So you, so the, the article wasn't don't feed them dairy. It was make sure that you get organic milk products. I was like, well, I'm okay. just – yeah, I'm just curious, has anybody actually studied this? So it turns out it's been studied actually quite a bit. The difference between conventionally raised dairy cows that are pumped full of estrogen essentially all the time and um, non-conventional dairy cows that are raised on grass, they're all organic. Um, it turns out that the level of estrogen is identical across all milk products between the two cows, um, which kind of makes sense because we, at least with dairy cows, we're pumping them full of estrogen to keep them producing milk for a long period of time. And for the non-conventional cows, in order to produce milk, their body has to be producing massive amounts of estrogen, and it comes out in the milk. So it turns out there's actually no difference it doesn't matter if you get organic milk. It doesn't matter if it's grass-fed butter. You get the exact same amount of hormones in the dairy products. Uh, so it affects your children the same. You don't need to go buy the more expensive stuff. And how many – is this like the third time we found studies that shown the organic or grass-fed version is the same or actually worse than the conventional? Is that uh, right, I Rocky? Think not. I think with – yeah. I mean this yeah, is it's several like third times. Time, yeah. So, he, you know, here's a message for everybody. Like, I know maybe it makes some sort of weird logical sense that everything modern is dangerous, which is the message of paleo, but that just turns out to be false. You know, they just – they went off of a premise before it was tested or they just ignored the data that's out there because there's a ton of data that shows – and, you know, the data accumulates all the time now because of paleo. We should – I'm actually very thankful of paleo for that reason because there were a lot of unanswered questions that have now been answered. Um, unfortunately, they weren't answered in favor of paleo. So if, that's if you – That's it's pretty amazing because, you know, you, you are marketed at Whole Foods, at Sprouts or Trader Joe's uh, about the hormone-free milk or the, 
And it's usually like two or three bucks a gallon more, right? Yeah. And it's not hormone free. The cows may not have had hormone, but your milk has the exact same amount of hormones in it as the conventional stuff. There's no difference. So if you are for a, a large, you know, as particularly my college life, uh, you know, I was on an extreme budget, so I would have never thought to try to get the more expensive milk or things like that. I wouldn't have ever worried about it. Now that I'm older and I feel like, you know, I, you know, even when I was a software engineer, you know, I was making a lot more money. I, at that time, I was like, well, I should be buying the more high quality food. Well, now that I'm in a situation that's, you know, pretty equivalent as far as, you know, my lifestyle, I'm like, it is stupid. I'm not paying more money for basically the exact same thing. Um, so, it, I, you know, I'm just thinking the cycles I've gone through in my life and, you know, I save a lot of money on food because I've learned about – I've learned intimately about the food that I do eat um, instead you have of – You have to – go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say instead of theorizing about it, which is what happens. Like everybody just sits around and theorizes and doesn't actually look into it. But once you do become intimately familiar, you can make better choices for health, for financial reasons. Uh, you can support the right industries. You know, maybe that is an argument for the grass-fed stuff, um, which I would support. We want to support that industry more than we want to support conventional farming. But at the same time, if you've got a family with several children and you're worried about your budget, you are not doing a disservice to your children by giving them conventionally raised products. They're, you're not doing any disservice whatsoever. They're getting the same nutrition and any negative effects. They're getting the same whether it's organic or whether it's not. You just have to wonder how many more more products and more um, you know scenarios they are, uh, lie where the research doesn't make it doesn't doesn't match up with the marketing. You know, um, and you know we've talked about several of them, but it, I mean I got to imagine there are hundreds more, right? Oh yeah, organic is another top one. You know, there's nothing special about organic. It actually might even be more poisonous for us and more carcinogenic. Um, you know, and now we've got the organic milk and the grass fed argument. There, it turns out that. That is not as good as, as we've gotten. You know, not everything modern is bad. And I don't, I don't know why that message is so strong in certain communities. Like if it has any touch of modernity to it whatsoever, we consider it evil. Um, and yeah, I, I, draw, I can draw the parallel to people coming to my office and thinking medicines are bad, you know, and that you shouldn't be on any medicine because it's, it's not natural. Right, so, but, but and, sometimes and, it could help. Again, it, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Stop Certainly. driving your car. Stop wearing shoes. Stop wearing clothes. Those things are all not natural. They're probably causing you cancer. <laughs> like don't put on – don't put – definitely do not wear undergarments. Undergarments are completely unnatural. They're probably causing cancer. I mean I'm, I'm almost positive of it because I know Paleolithic man did not wear briefs. End of story. And they definitely didn't wear cotton panties. So that stuff, I know it. It's causing cancer. We need to stop wearing it. <laughs> Could you I, <laughs> imagine? I, I, well, I know, but that's basically what the argument is. And I, I understand yeah. that eating food is a little more intimate, but think about it. Undergarments are in contact with your skin all day and in areas of the skin that is actually highly susceptible to absorption. So who knows what rampant, crazy, cotton, carcinogenic substances are being absorbed into the body 
around those areas. I mean, I, that to me seems as likely of a source of cancer as, you know, the pesticides on that apple I ate three years ago. I'll go back to eating my cottage cheese and pepperoni. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm good with that as well. <laughs> Cooper as well with his pancetta and cottage cheese. So, all right. Anything else to rant on? No, I think we've done enough no. ranting for an hour. Yeah, we might actually, um, anybody who listens to this all the way through, it'll be interesting to see if you hear a pre-introduction of the podcast because I think at this point we should go back and warn people um, about the content of this podcast and that it is a bit of a rant. So You think so? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, let's do that. Get so, upset that. Huh? Right. Yeah, let's, let's wrap this up. people get upset about that? Yeah, they do. Right. I, you know, I just don't want that impression. I just have a bee in my bonnet, so... Let's wrap this up. Okay. It's another episode of Body IO FM. Uh, if you like this podcast, you find it valuable. Maybe not this one podcast in particular, but the uh, you know the rest of our body of work. If you find that uh, in any way compelling, please uh, like us everywhere that you can. Give us positive rankings on iTunes. You can now sign up on the website to get weekly updates uh, and just you know give us some feedback. Let us know what you'd like to hear about. Uh, we're actually trying to set up to do a live podcast where we can get some callers on. Uh, you know, it's an exciting time. Uh, just thanks for supporting, you know, whether you've supported by getting supplements, which is at carbshock.com. You can get on the waiting list if you if you miss that. Uh, T3 Fuel, which is at t3fuel.com. Uh, again, that, that's a great supplement. We're going to be putting out some information about it. Uh, there's Carb Night, carbnight.com, carbbackloading, carbbackloading.com. I forgot to mention High Elite Athletic Wear. You know, go check them out. Uh, they at least give us moral support. Uh, transforming recipes. What else have we got? There, there's so much stuff. You guys, you know, I hope you found this stuff of value. And thanks to everybody who supported us, um, especially if you just listened to this rant when we did the things that we say we hate most. So um, thanks for being on Rocky. First time in a while. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's and, been good to come back. I. I felt so dis, uh, disconnected. Yeah, and we actually have a very exciting podcast uh, next week. Uh, I, I'm excited about it because it goes into some psychological aspects of diet and healthcare that until now have not really been utilized or talked about anywhere. Uh, so you can consider it for the first time like a Body IO exclusive. Um, cool. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited and. Um, and I think you will be too, Rocky. I look forward to it. Yep. So uh, until next time, everyone. You've been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.